Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Robin Hathaway T. Morris Kimmy Alexander Amy Guerin Stephanie Sawyer Philippa Ballantyne Stephen H. Wilson Chris Lester Shannon Holden Michael LaMangelo With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence Listener discretion is advised And now, episode 21 Hello, this is Larry Bushy, creator and host of the Going Linux podcast If you are a computer user new to Linux moving to Linux, or just thinking about going Linux, then you'll want to listen to the Going Linux podcast at goinglinux.com. You're listening to Predestination, and this is the story so far. The last time we saw dancer diva Brittany Hydra, she found herself foisted into the position of cast mother by the terrorist attacks on Luna, and in a direct power struggle with Xylar, a man known to the public as the right hand. Since Cassie's absence, he's been acting more full of himself than normal, and she can't help but wonder what he's up to. After weeks of communication, terrorist attacks, suspicion involving his erstwhile associate Cassie Orenthal, Joss Kyle has secured the insurance he needs for his own peace of mind. A ship named Fugitive, refitted to his specifications, capable of flying in atmosphere or in space. It's probably a good thing, as he doesn't know that Cassie Orenthal is coming to see him with Douglas Reeves in tow, and that they are conspiring together to trap him. Six months ago, Marion Shelley was attacked in a restroom on Space Station Sidon. She was drugged and mutilated, but the wounds she sustained were secondary to the loss. When she was found, the dead body of her husband was found next to her. The convalescence has been long, but in the end, even in the face of death, life must go on. The clear, cosmetic adhesive pulled at her skin. The stitches had dissolved, the scars blanched out with lasers, and the whole thing covered for days with a UV-protecting second skin made out of God knew what. Medicine wasn't Marion's passion, and she'd had enough of hospitals and doctors in the last couple of months for good and all. They'd managed to remove the scars on her back, and the cloned skin graft still itched a bit as the flesh married under the UV-protective bandages. Not that anyone would see them for a while... Maybe nobody would ever see them again. But her face was something everyone would see, and she didn't want to go back to the hospital just to get the cosmetic bandage off. As the November sun burned thinly overhead through the bare maples, she sat on her park bench with a hand mirror and plucked at the edges of the bandage. It was winter, or soon would be. Marion was a creature of the summertime, The light clothes, the warm sun, the time at Martha's Vineyard, and out on boats stolen away from the constant campaigning, media relations, and vid calls. Time to enjoy God's jewel in its best light. But right now, as the sun failed to the south, she wrapped her wool duster around herself and looked across the green, 
or rather the brown, of the mall at the constant foot traffic in and out of the Smithsonian, and found herself grateful for the long, dark season stretching before her. Time to rest, to bury the dead, to sleep away the nightmares so that she could come alive again with the earth in the spring. It wasn't an election year, so she could slip back into work at the consulting firm without having to deal with the madness of a campaign season. Marion winced a bit as she pulled the final tendrils free from her under eyes, the skin underneath puckering pink as the cold breeze gusted across it. The world was paler and colder than she remembered, but Autumn had a way of doing that. She stood up from her bench and brushed the last of the bandage off her face, feeling her nose again, deceptively perfected. No more pain. The mall slid by as she headed for her office to start her first day back at work. Routine. That was the thing. Elizabeth's offices were only a couple of blocks away, so they'd meet for lunch like they used to. The Kurtz building on K Street was still there. Two hundred stories of consultancy and advocacy cast in steel, marble, and glass. The atrium stretched straight up to the roof in an inverse pyramid, the weak autumn light falling down on the ground garden like the focus of a celestial eye. Time was, once, that she would have come down for a walk in the stone pathways between the planters and imagined that the skylight above was the lens through which God could watch her. Perhaps she'd do so again. The glass express elevator sliding up the north side of the atrium brought her virtually to her office door. With a beep from the card reader, the frosted glass slid aside. She walked in, looking mostly at her feet, keeping her breathing even and trying to remember that life was supposed to go on. Somewhere, someone knew the reasons. As long as she could trust that, she'd be alright. The receptionist's desk was empty, but that wasn't unusual. The place didn't open for visitors until 8.30. She turned left and pushed her way through the double oak doors into the conference room to prepare for the morning meeting. She'd pulled out her customary seat and set her small handbag down on the desk, leaned back and closed her eyes, taking a few breaths. The world was still really here. The office hadn't evaporated. The firm hadn't shattered. The thieves on Sidon hadn't unmade the world. They'd just taken... Well... Everything. <laughs> she shuddered, as if a cold wind had just blown down her neck. Cut it out, Marion. Get your mind back on today. She couldn't bring herself to think the name just yet. There was plenty of winter ahead for that. Right now, she needed to make sure the world wouldn't slip away from her. Later... If she had to, she could cry again. The chime on her PPD rang. Eight o'clock, nobody here. Was the office closed today? It couldn't be. No one closed for Thanksgiving a week early, and nobody on the hill went home for Thanksgiving unless the house took a recess. Where were they? She didn't hear anyone in the front office, so she stood and walked to the back door leading to the individual offices and cubicles. Nobody in the hall... Nobody in any of the small offices. Nobody in the cube farm. Outside the windows, a few scattered snowflakes were falling. Marion looked out at the traffic below and whispered a prayer of thanks for central heating and storm windows as she walked briskly along the outer wall to the large conference room where the firm gave presentations to groups of aides and politicians. Perhaps there was an early presentation today. The doors weren't locked. She didn't even need her keycard to open the room. 
The lights weren't on. Nobody here either. She peered around from the doorway and, satisfied that it was just a dark, empty auditorium, she turned around. Before she could take a step, the lights behind her sprang to life. Terror crawled like ants up the back of her neck, and it was all she could do not to run for her life. Behind her, somewhere, someone cleared their throat. Her body wouldn't answer her. She knew she had to turn around. She was at work. She was a junior partner in the firm. She was the oldest daughter of the most powerful dynasty in New England. She was an adult human being. She'd left them up there. This was her office. It was perfectly safe. One deep breath, and Marion willed her muscles to work again. She took a half step back, pivoting her weight on the balls of her left foot. She spun as quickly as she could without looking panicked, maintaining her poise as perfectly and professionally as she could. Marion's words caught in her throat. Welcome home, Marion stretched on a banner across the far wall in giant golden white letters. Below the banner, emerging from behind the acoustic curtains, were people, everyone she'd worked with for the last six years. Brandon, the firm's president, Musharraf, the events coordinator, Dorothy and Ashan, the inseparable team of senior partners. Everyone. Marion ran her eyes over all the familiar faces, cutthroat lobbyists, ruthless campaigners, sharks and card sharps of all sorts on the clock. Every one of them decent, honest, and warm off the clock. They were all looking at her, smiling welcome, no one speaking. She tried three or four times to find her tongue before writing off speech as an anachronism and stepping forward haltingly once, then twice. Dorothy and Ashan broke ranks and walked to her, each catching her in a hug from one side. Marion hugged each in turn as best she could, still not able to find her voice. Ashan pulled back and smiled warmly at her and broke the silence. Marion, this firm just doesn't work without you here. Yeah! Enid, the IT intern, called from the back of the room. Everyone had to work overtime just to keep up with your slack load. The crowd tittered and giggled. We've all been praying for you. Ashan continued, beaming at her. Welcome back to the family. Marion found her tongue. Thank you. All of you. Her eyes ached from the pressure, but she swallowed hard and held her head high and did her best to hold back the tears of relief and gratitude. It almost worked. So, Miss Shelley. Brandon stepped forward and clapped her warmly on the arm. Will you join us for breakfast? He stepped aside and the acoustic curtains at the side of the room parted, opening the room up on the AV alcove, filled with a table piled high with a buffet of summer fruit from south of the equator, scones, sausage, and finger foods from all over the world. Marion smiled, no longer worried about hiding the mist in her eyes. The world would go on. And she was home. The case clinked satisfactorily as it landed on the bar. About damn time, too. Almost three weeks to have new bottles and tumblers made. On a planet, getting new glass made wouldn't even be an issue. Take some sand, take some ash, mix well together under high heat, add some chemicals, blow into a mold, and sell it at your corner store. People did it all the time on Mars or Luna or Earth. Things on a space station were a little different. Even the sandpaper wasn't made with real sand. Here, everything was polymers, metals, and carbon fibers from nanofabs. Joss wouldn't have any of that shit in Phalanx. 
Real glass was one of those little touches, like the Wastewood mosaics, that set it apart. Custom orders from the glassworks took forever, but they did good work. Joss pulled a bottle out of the case and held it up to the light. Perfect clarity, beautifully built, decorated with his own labels applied at the shop. The bombing had cost him a lot of good bar glass as well as the obvious, but now he could serve proper whiskey in the kinds of bottles a groundhog expected. Give them a little touch of home. <laughs> groundhog, Joss snorted to himself. You're going native, Joss. Watch it out or you'll be joining the Mortonites next. Cassie would be pleased. He slid the case of bottles to the dish boy for a quick washout before he filled them and hung them, like he'd do to Cassie if she didn't get back to him soon. She wasn't answering his calls or returning his emails. Ever since the bombing, all he'd gotten from her were news reports and cryptic warnings and the email saying she was coming. Sooner or later, she'd actually show up, and if she caught him in a good mood, she might survive long enough to spot him using words like groundhog. She had a finger in this somehow. He only hoped she had a good explanation. It would be a shame if he had to kill her. What had gotten into her? And why did he give a damn? She wasn't exactly his type, well, any of his types. What had gotten into him? The kid finished washing and slid the bottles back along the bar in the rack. The happy rattling greeted Joss's ears as he grabbed 750 milliliter bottles from the rack, filling them from the taps under the bar and putting them back in the stock rack for pouring later. The glass wasn't just a mere affectation for the customers. Like the real liquors, it was one of those little touches that kept order in Joss's universe. An orderly world was all that ever stood between humanity and the abyss. He knew. He'd been in the abyss and didn't much fancy going back. Phalanx wasn't empty anymore. It only took a couple of days and some impressive, if not altogether legal, displays by the security troops for people to start filtering back in. The tournament was pretty much shot, no useful contacts and a whole lot of trouble. But there was always next time. Whiskey done. Time for the brandy. Joss turned from the rack behind the bar to grab another bottle and froze. Her body languished against the bulkhead just inside the front door. Relaxed and easy like an ocelot lying in wait. Even thirty feet away, across the nearly unoccupied tables, her eyes probed him with threats under the pale orange brows. Somehow, I knew I'd find you here. The acoustics of the room carried her sardonic purr up to him with perfect clarity. It occurred to him that he didn't have a clean shot. <laughs> Hard to feel any pride in winning a guessing game with only one answer. Without breaking eye contact, Joss reached up under the bar with both hands. I was just wondering when you'd show up. His left hand found a pair of tumblers. His right found a small sliding panel. He brought out the tumblers, setting one next to another with practiced ease, and nodded at her. As Cassie walked towards him, red hair glowing orange under the harsh pot lights in the serpentine walkway between the tables, he slipped a small dart gun out of the hidden compartment and stashed it in his pocket. By the time she arrived at the bar, a pair of doubles stood ready, attempting to look hospitable. His best cask-strength single malt. If it was the last drink she drank, it would be a decent one. If he owed her nothing else... He owed her that. Cassie threw her left leg wide over the backless bar stool and straddled it like a conquest. Sitting squarely in front of him, she finally broke his gaze and appraised the glasses. Predictably, too predictably, 
She chose the one furthest from Joss and lifted it up to the light. No additives? You know me better than that. Do I? She shot a silent dare at him. She was holding something, and she wanted him to know it. Joss reached into his pocket and drew the gun. He set it down on the counter between them. I prefer my kills clean. She fixed her gaze on him, then nodded curtly. As if she'd decided something, she knocked the drink back in one swallow. Despite having learned to expect her cretinous disregard for the finer points of good drink, Joss winced. It really was an intolerable waste. Nonetheless, he lifted his glass and mimed a silent, to-your-health toast, then sipped the ambrosia. He held her eyes, making sure she saw how it was supposed to be done. It was a game they played. If it offends you that much, I suppose I ought to buy the drink. Cassie reached into her pocket and produced a coin. She tossed it casually on the table in front of him. It was gold, worn, old. An American double eagle. Joss's stomach sank hopelessly. Ever seen one of these before, traitor? Zyler wouldn't know good taste if it slathered him in garlic butter. It didn't surprise her. Brittany pegged him the first time she saw him. Small men were easy to spot. They were always trying to look bigger, and not just with fancy cod pieces. She developed a theory during her wanderings around the colony. The size of a codpiece was inversely proportional to a man's self-confidence. She didn't fancy debasing herself enough with any of the furry beasts to find out if the correlation carried all the way down to anatomy, and scientific curiosity wasn't worth the bother of doctoring a drink and then absconding before they woke up. If her theory was correct, then Zyler's testified to the world like a hip-mounted hostile witness. From the loud cut of his garishly purple dinner jacket to the green ruffled foil adorning the walls, she kept his elephantine codpiece as far from the front of her mind as she could, the entire evening announced Zyler's complete and utter triumph over taste of any kind. There was no shame in bold color, of course, not in the gold body paint that covered her skin from twisted toes to tiara, nor in the purple light that bathed her from every direction, and not from the silver and green ruffles that dappled the walls in refractive brilliance. The shame came from the spectacular incompetence of the entire soiree. Brittany shook her head and took advantage of the needlessly expensive champagne. The performance was still warm in her muscles. She figured she had about another half an hour before the endorphins washed away and the pain kicked in. If she could build up a slight buzz and then drop some painkillers, the ride down wouldn't leave her crying when she hit bottom. In the meantime, the gaudiness all around her meant that she at least would have someone to laugh at. Meandering through the crowd, she told the parts of her story that she could comfortably turn into jokes in civilian company. What was meant to be a cast party had mysteriously attracted all manner of well-moneyed mucky-mucks from around the planetoid. She should have been happy for the exposure, she knew, but they were back in her green room treading in her sacred space. A cast party is a cast party, not a networking opportunity for the producer's bratty underling. A few forgettable conversations and well-wishings brought her next to the craps table, where she could ride the waves of excitement and bask in the heat from the too bright lamp, keeping her shoulders as warm as her back and putting off the inevitable ache. 
Gaming tables notwithstanding, it really was the crappiest cast party she'd ever been to. As impromptu carnivals went, though, it wasn't half bad. She idly wondered which one of the many movers and shakers Zyler was trying desperately to impress. The list of people he'd let backstage looked like a wish list of interview subjects for lifestyles of the expensive and uninteresting. Snake Eyes, you're crapped out, buddy. The croupier pushed the dice to Brittany. I'm not shooting tonight. Not for you. He shook his head and then nodded at the wan, thin man standing next to her. You! The man scooped up the dice and threw them. Six and one! The dice pushed to the next player. Scrats! The man cursed and hit the table. Brittany looked him over. Despite the sharp suit and the well-fed lines, something about him wasn't there. His eyes were alert, but he seemed confused like he'd forgotten where he belonged. Or maybe like a dog who'd been kicked too many times and for no good reason. Don't worry. A waiter passed by with a tray of champagne flutes, already stripped to the waist and decorated with the odd hickey. Decadence has the trots tonight and can't keep his hip down, I see. She pilfered a fresh glass and swung it generously around to the stranger. My luck's worse. He caught the glass at the edge of his vision and looked up at her with a question in his eyes. It's for you, I promise. What? He started as if his mind had been somewhere else. Oh, thanks. You don't belong here, do you? He shook his head. It shows. You're wearing that suit like you had to borrow it from your mate's dead dog. Not far wrong. He looked around as if trying to remember what room he was in. I'm Brittany. Yeah, I saw you up there. Very athletic performance. Scott. He didn't extend his hand. Instead, he gave her the most imperceptible of nods and then returned to his compulsive glancing about. He looked as if the crowd made him skittish. If you're wanting to hide... There are better places to do it than the craps table. No, no, I'm supposed to meet someone. He said this was the best. Brittany lost the rest of the sentence as the crowd around the table exploded with a roar. And that, my friends, is how it's done. The booming, effete voice resounded over the din. The shooter was one of the board members. Brittany tried to remember his name. On Earth, she'd gone years at a stretch without knowing the name of her MP or PM or whatever the fuck they called it. But here, she couldn't get away from politics no matter how hard she tried. You had to know who was who and who wanted to kill who if you wanted to make any sense of the surcharges on the oxygen bill. It also didn't help that Cassie deemed politics her most important hobby and corresponded with anyone who would let her slip them a C-note. Congratulations, Mr. Singh! Zyler's inimitable voice cut through the crowd like a badly rusted straight razor. That was it. Greg Singh, the board member from Darkside. He ignored Zyler and gave the younger man on his arm a victory kiss. The politician looked up from his paramour and nodded politely at his host. Brittany turned back to her neighbor, only to find him staring at Singh as well. Your friend. What? No, that's him. There. The man nodded to Zyler. Oh, well, have at him. The stranger drained his drink and set the empty down on the side of the table. He reached up to his collar and pulled out a pendant, one that Brittany didn't recognize. The cross with the towel hanging from it was just another religious symbol, one of the hundreds that flecked the walls in the advertising space on Luna. He looked at her and smiled. Thanks for the drink. He nodded, and just before he left, he couldn't resist running his eyes over her paint job with a look that suggested more than friendly appreciation. Typical. Before she could disabuse him of any notions he had of taking her home, he was off zigzagging through the crowd to find Zyler. Before she could return to the table, Ophelia caught her elbow. Bored, Brit. Her eyes danced. You can't imagine. 
A few of us are heading down to the spa. Shankar has some dust in a book of Coleridge. Wants to share it around. Just what she'd been waiting for. This can't end well. Brittany smiled widely. Shankar and Coleridge were a recipe for an impromptu encounter group. Ophelia, who lived for such things, looked around pointedly, then raised her eyebrow in Brittany's general direction. It'll be more interesting than watching bankers play dice. Brittany laughed and tilted her head across the table towards Zyler. <laughs> He's going to be weeks figuring out that he blew all this wad on a cast party that the cast ducked out of. It was just ironic enough to be worth doing. And, she noted, the aches were starting to set in. The hot water would help. Ophelia smiled. Now you're getting it. Shankar and Dust. Didn't sound so bad. The man had a way of putting everyone at ease. A quiet evening listening to him read from his books and maybe trading confessions with her nearest and dearest from this season's run might be just the thing. Yes, Mom. And no other blokes? Not a one. Show me the way. Ophelia strode before her, clearing a path between the pressed flesh dandies and socialites treading across her sacred space. When Brittany reached the portal out into the hall, she looked back. Even after the cleaning bots came through, it was going to be hell setting the place right again. The politician was still playing dice, his companion amusing himself with that man, was it Scott he called himself, making sure that Singh and Zyler were both looking. Brittany was no politician, no grand strategist, but she knew the look of a man who was out of his depth. Zyler had that look, and had done since Cassie left. Brittany shook her head and ducked her chair through the door, leaving the party to those who really wished to be seen. The steam, the bubbles, and the camaraderie beckoned her from three levels down. The coin sat between them, gold against the deep cherry tile of the bar, like an unspoken threat. Where'd you get that? Nobody but his hand-picked operatives were supposed to know about the double eagles, let alone have one. Cassie didn't need them to get an audience with him, and she wasn't using the password, which meant that however she'd come across them, it wasn't legitimate. Joss suddenly wished he'd dosed her drink. A little birdie gave it to me. She was fishing. But what for? Did it have a name? I'm sure it did. A look of satisfaction crossed her face. That was what she was looking for. She wanted to know if the coins were particular to one person or were a network protocol. She got it, and he just gave it to her. Damn. You'd better come with me. Joss deliberately turned his back on her and walked out and hooked a U-turn into the office behind the bar. He wasn't daring her to shoot him. He knew she wouldn't. She still needed something from him, and he wanted her to know that he knew he was holding something. He just wished he knew what. When Mondu saw Joss come through the door with Cassie in tow, he immediately vacated. His assistant stood and walked out in lockstep with him. It's like they rehearse when I'm not around. Alone in the closet-like war room, Joss leaned back up against his console and crossed his arms. Cassie stayed just in the door jam, as striking as he'd ever seen her in the dim, scattered office light. He'd waited for this moment since he'd first held her in his garrote. She would never really trust him. No one trusts a defector, and he'd never really trust her who duped him and abducted him. The fact that she'd made good on her promise to get him away didn't matter. It was a setup, and the fact that the strings were ones he didn't actually mind didn't change that. She'd played him, 
the only person in years who'd been able to, and she got her hooks in him just as quickly as she could. She made him care for her. It was the one thing he'd never forgive her. One day, he knew, one of them would have to kill the other. He'd always known it. Now, looking at her across the small space in his office, his fingers inches from the throwing knife in his sleeve, it seemed the time had come. Where did you get the coin? Cassie found a comfortable corner, being careful, Joss noted, to lean with her gun hip exposed and at the ready. Let's start back a little ways. By all means. Where would you prefer? Why don't we start at the part where you faked your defection? Joss didn't flinch. He hadn't expected this, but if she really believed that, she would have iced him without a second thought. Her tolerance for treachery was too slight. Oh, rats. And here I was hoping you'd want to start at the point where you ordered the bombing in my bar. She looked at him as if she was trying to make up her mind. He couldn't read her. After a long moment, she spoke again. Now, let's start at the beginning. That's a part of the story you know already. Then why... She dipped her left hand into her hip pocket above her gun belt. Did you tell me you'd never heard of Scott Walters? Why were all of these... She pulled her hand out and let fall, one by one, a stack of gold coins. They thudded heavily on the carpet like a judge's gavel. In his apartment. Perfect execution. Joss's breath quickened. He didn't say anything. What are they for, Reuben? He took a breath, sorting quickly through a dozen plausible lies. If he could put her off, get some time. But the damnable truth was that she held part of his puzzle, and he needed it. And the truth wouldn't hurt him, at least not so quickly as he couldn't hedge against it once he saw how the cards fell. The coins are part of a bounty flag. They identify sellers to my staff who pass them along to me. Who holds them? few people in my network who spread the news were on the lookout for something. Was Scott Walters one of those people? No, I'd never... He almost said seen, but somehow the word didn't seem to fit. Heard of him before in my life. Cassie said nothing. The soft whir of the ventilation fans filled the air between them like a lullaby. Whatever answers she was looking for, he obviously didn't have, and being in her presence again convinced him that she didn't order the bombing. It wasn't in her character. Like him, she preferred her kills clean and personal. She was the kind of woman who didn't step away from the responsibility, even if it meant carrying the face of a lover with her in the back of her mind. He couldn't bring himself to level the accusation again, but he needed to know if, maybe, she had an answer. Have you told anyone I'm here? No. Almost against his will, he dropped his arms to his side and rested them on the table behind him. Slowly, quietly, the adrenaline ebbed out of his system. I think we have a problem. Her brashness was gone. He heard the worry bobbing around just under the surface of her businesslike voice. I think you're right. Do you have any plans for tomorrow morning? Actually, I... Cancel them. She turned to leave. The door slid away in front of her. Where are you having dinner? He almost let her go, but the question slipped out of its own accord. Wherever there's food. She didn't look back at him. 1900. Make sure it's good. The door slid shut behind her. You've been listening to episode 21 of Antithesis, book one, Predestination, and other games of chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music by Danny Shade. Used with permission. 
This episode starred Robin Hathaway as Marion Shelley, T. Morris as Brandon, Kimmy Alexander as Ashan, Amy Guerin as Enid, Stephanie Sawyer as Cassie Orenthal, Philippa Ballantyne as Brittany Hydra, Stephen H. Wilson as Percy Scott, Chris Lester as Greg Singh, Shannon Holden as Ophelia, and Michael LaMangelo as Xylar. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008, Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2009, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. From the writer of Taste of the Dead comes a new full-length thriller, Dark Matter, by Michelle Roger. In a freak accident that leads to her untimely death, Luella finds herself transformed into one of the walking undead. Michael, the Archangel, offers her a chance to win her life and family back. But Luella learns that even in the afterlife, nothing is free. In her quest to regain her life, she learns that even the forces for good have their own agendas. This podcast novel is available at www.michelleroger.com and on iTunes. And that is, I think, the episode with the most guest voices of any single episode in the series. There were ten guest voices, and that doesn't count me, and I played three roles in there. Thank you to all of you who helped me out, and big congratulations to Robin Hathaway, who plays Marion Shelley. She just gave birth to her first, and her last episode of the book ran the day after. Hard to tell which is more important. Uh, I know, I'm sorry, I'm full of shit. Congratulations, Robin, and thank you very much for turning in such a kick-ass performance as Marion. Any of you out there looking for casting for television stage or voiceover, she has a killer presence, and I've seen her in a variety of roles now. You can find her info at www.robinhathaway.net. So yeah, six episodes left. This week's was late. I had to wait for new music for the opening scene. The next episode is sitting ready and waiting for its new music, hoping that that will drop on time Thursday, but it may be at latest Sunday. A lot of these final episodes have new music in them. As all the threads come together and as the storylines close out, at least for this book, I need new variations on the theme to help tie it all together orchestrally. Danny Shade is doing a hell of a job at it. Speaking of which, you'll hear him in a cameo in the next episode. I won't tell you who just yet. Let's see if you can spot him. Watch for me on Erotica a la carte this April 15th at www.eroticaalacarte.com. I've been commissioned to write an erotic mystery set in a speakeasy. The story is called Buried Alive in the Blues, and I'm writing it in and around all the other stuff I'm working on here. Also, watch for me on GeekCred at www.geekcred.net. I recorded an interview with the host, Scott Rickerberg, this evening, and we had a really fun time of it. Should be good listening. Chris Lester, Kitty Nakian, and I are recording a new feedback show this Saturday with special guest Gail Carragher. 
Gail's a paranormal steampunk comedy author who's been a good friend of mine for a couple of years, and her first book, Soulless, is coming out this October from Orbit Books. She's got a background in history, archaeology, and epistemology, along with a wicked sense of humor and a serrated wit, so she'll fit right in here. Should be a very entertaining show. If you want to be in on it, send in feedback before Thursday night so I have time to collate it. Friday night's the BSG finale, and I have a feeling I won't be doing any work after that. We're light on voicemail this time around, so send it in to 206-350-5739 or record an email some to dan at jdsawyer.net. You can leave comments on the blog at antithesis.jdsawyer.net or leave iTunes reviews. Remember always that questions, comments, criticisms, attaboys, and death threats are welcome. Tell your friends about the show. Now with just a few episodes to go, it's a perfect time to start listening. Also, if you have a podcast and would like to interview me, I'm looking for new places to promote predestination as we go into the final stretch. I'll see you with a new episode sometime between now and Sunday. And until then, I leave you with the nagging questions. What is Percy doing back on Luna? And why is he getting in touch with Xylar? What will Marion do now that she's out of the hospital? How much will she eventually remember? And perhaps most importantly, what is Joss going to do with Cassie at dinner? Find out this weekend, and until next time, remember... It isn't whether you win or lose, it's how you rig the game.